Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. We at The History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and The History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join The History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with The History Guy, books behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. On today's episode, the History Guy tells the history of two kinds of animals and their use in warfare, especially their use in World War I. First, he tells the story of pigeons, from their domestication to their use as messengers on European battlefields in World War I. Then he tells the story of mercy dogs, also called hospital dogs, who searched the barren no-man's land for injured soldiers throughout the Great War. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. If I were to ask you what is the smallest soldier to have been awarded a medal in the Second World War, your guess might not go as low as nine ounces. Homing pigeons have been used in war since antiquity, but their role continued surprisingly well into the era of mighty machines. And the wartime contributions of homing pigeons is history that deserves to be remembered. Fossil evidence suggests that the rock dove, Columba Livia, the wild bird that is most commonly called simply a pigeon, originated in Southeast Asia. But the species has had such a long association with humans that it is today impossible to determine its original range. In fact, most experts assume that the pigeon is the world's oldest domesticated bird, with its domestication mentioned in both Mesopotamian cuneiform tablets and Egyptian hieroglyphs more than 5,000 years ago. Domesticated as both food and as pets, humans have spread the species far and wide. Millions of the domesticated pigeons have become feral, interbreeding with their wild counterparts, to the point where the bird's range covers nearly 5 million square miles, and the European population alone is estimated to be as high as 28 million. 5,000 years of breeding resulted in many fancy breeds. The ability to breed for traits fascinated, among many others, Charles Darwin, who owned a flock and was a member of pigeon clubs. Pigeons impacted his work, and he used them as examples of variation of animals under domestication. While many were bred for decoration and some for food, others were bred to select for the species' extraordinary capacity for homing. Homing is an inherent ability of an animal species to navigate towards an original location through unfamiliar areas. Homing can be used in migration, a way to return home, common in birds, but also salmon and log red sea turtles, and the tiny red-bellied newt, which at just three and a half inches long, will travel sometimes miles over rugged terrain to return to the same spot in a stream. Homing in pigeons is a bit of a mystery, as the rock dove is not migratory, but the pigeons do have an ability to return home to their mate and nest. The most popular theory is that homing pigeons use magnetoreception, navigation by using the Earth's magnetic field, although the exact mechanism for how they detect the field is still a matter of debate, and some studies have found pigeons are able to return home even if the magnetic field is disrupted. Other cues, from olfactory navigation to navigating by visual landmarks, has also been suggested. In fact, it is possible that different types of homing pigeons use different types of navigation. 
But whatever the mechanism, homing is an exceptionally easy characteristic to breed for. You simply let the birds out and only breed the ones that make it back. The incentive to breed for the homing skill came from the sport of pigeon racing, releasing pigeons to see which returns to its nest the fastest. While it isn't clear exactly when the sport was developed, it was at least well established in the time of King Solomon, some 3,000 years ago. The homing skill could be effective over enormous distances, with some races occurring over distances in excess of a thousand miles, and with sustained speeds in excess of 50 miles per hour. The corollary to pigeon racing is the pigeon post, the use of pigeons to send messages, where their speed and homing ability made them superior to almost all means of communication before the electronic era. There is record of Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, using homing pigeons to communicate across the vast Persian Empire some 2,500 years ago, and pigeons were used in ancient Olympic games to alert a winner's hometown of their victory. The use of a pigeon for post has a limit in that, in general, the pigeon only homes one direction, has to be physically moved to the second location, and their size limits the size of the message they may carry. However, by placing their food in one location and their nest in another, pigeons have been able to be trained to fly back and forth between two locations over distances as much as about 100 miles. A version of a pigeon post was active in Baghdad at least as early as the 12th century, and a pigeon post was used by Genghis Khan to keep track of his empire in the 13th century. Pigeon posts were used as late as the 19th century between the California mainland and the town of Avalon on Catalina Island. A homing pigeon service in the 1890s between Great Barrier Island and Auckland, New Zealand, called a pigeongram, issued stamps, making it, some argue, the first real airmail service. The rare stamps are highly prized today by philatelists. Less successful was a late 19th century pigeon post used for marine search and rescue in Nova Scotia, where pigeons were flown from lighthouses and islands to the mainland. Because of the harsh conditions, the pigeons suffered a high mortality rate. When Paris was besieged by the Prussian army during the Franco-Prussian War in 1870 and 71, Parisians communicated with the outside world using pigeons, and the Prussians employed trained hawks to disrupt the service. As microphotographs had been developed in the 1850s, pigeons could carry hundreds of messages on a small roll, and more than a million messages were sent via pigeon during the four-month siege. Given their reliability and speed, it's not surprising that homing pigeons have been used in time of war. In the 10th century, Olga of Kiev, the regent of Kievan Rus, demanded a tribute of three pigeons and three sparrows from each house, from the besieged residents of the Drevlian city of Iskoristan, in exchange for ending the siege. Instead of ending the siege and bringing peace as promised, she had a small cloth of sulfur and pitch bound to each bird, and when they returned to their homes, they set the city ablaze, burning it to ashes. During the Second World War, behaviorist B.F. Skinner theorized that a pigeon could be conditioned to recognize a target and drive a glider laden with explosives, essentially pecking on a control when the glider moved off target. While this early attempt at a guided missile attracted some military interest, the so-called Project Pigeon was eventually abandoned as being impractical when compared to competing projects. In 1908, a German apothecary named Julius Neubonner developed a small camera that could be set with a timer and attached to a pigeon for the purpose of aerial photography. The German army investigated the military potential, but by the Great War, aerial technology had developed to the point that airplanes were a better platform. Still, the idea persisted into the Second World War, when the German army apparently trained dogs to carry a pigeon in a basket behind enemy lines. The pigeons then flew back to the German lines with cameras that took photos at five-minute intervals. 
While the Soviet army reported capturing a German truck that included cameras and equipment for pigeon photography in 1942, it's unclear how much they were actually used. The U.S. Central Intelligence Agency developed a pigeon camera during the 1970s for use during the Cold War. Reports are that the pigeons would be dropped from airplanes. The details of the camera and the results of the program are still classified. But the most successful use of war pigeons was as a messenger. The use of messenger pigeons in war is ancient, and there are several references in Roman texts of pigeons being used by Julius Caesar to communicate with his armies during the Gallic Wars. Hannibal took pigeons with him to keep Carthage appraised of his progress as he crossed the Alps. When the British defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, a pigeon was the first to carry the news of the victory to London. By the 1800s, pigeons were an established part of every major European army. The greatest use of pigeons in war was during the Great War. On the cusp of the electronic age, the war featured old and new technology. Where conditions made it impossible to string wires and radio technology was undependable, pigeons were a relatively reliable form of communication, with some claiming that they achieved a success rate more than 95%. Estimates are that as many as a half million pigeons were utilized during the war. Pigeons were an important part of the new technologies of the war. Aircraft and tanks were fast-moving and often discovered urgent information to carry back to headquarters. Radios of the day were too large and unreliable to be carried, and pigeons were carried by both, as well as by warships. When the U.S. first deployed tanks under Major George Patton at the Battle of Semihel, the lead company sent a pigeon named President Wilson back to headquarters with a map of the location of German machine gun nests. Pilots found that they could throw pigeons out at any altitude and they would successfully fly home, although you had to throw them carefully to keep them from hitting parts of the aircraft. Pigeons were such an important means of communication on both sides that troops would shoot at them, knowing that they were carrying messages. Some troops were issued shotguns for exactly that purpose. In at least one case, an American spy camouflaged a white pigeon named Babette with soot, so it would appear to be a crow, making it less likely that the Germans would target it. The pigeon made it back to headquarters with information about a German attack, allowing the Allies to thwart the attack with artillery. A pigeon named Le Cirque was credited with capturing a German submarine. When a French beach watcher sighted a German periscope off the coast, Le Cirque got a message back to Naval Command so quickly that British and American destroyers were able to trap the submarine and force it to surrender. When the famous Lost Battalion of the U.S. 77th Infantry was trapped behind enemy lines during the Battle of the Meuse in 1918 and cut off from other means of communication, a pigeon named Cherami, or Best Friend, flew through enemy fire to alert command as to the battalion's location. The timely message saved the battalion from a misplaced Allied artillery barrage that was dropping on the Lost Battalion and allowed the Allies to advance enough to withdraw the battalion. Cherami carried the message 25 miles in 25 minutes, despite having been wounded by German fire, having lost a leg with a hole through her breast. For her courage, she was awarded the Croix de Guerre by the French. Surgeons saved Cherami, including providing her with a wooden leg. She returned to be part of the Army breeding program, and after her death in 1919, was taxidermied and is on display at the Smithsonian Institution. Despite the advance of radio communication, homing pigeons still played a vital role in the Second World War. The Royal Air Force carried pigeons with bomber crews, where there were reliable means of informing headquarters when a plane had crashed. The RAF estimated that one in every seven of its bomber crewmen who were rescued after being shot down over the ocean were rescued as a result of a message sent by a pigeon. In one case, the crew of a Beaufort bomber shot down over the North Sea in 1942 was rescued because their pigeon, a bird named Winky, managed to make it home despite being covered in oil. 
Winky didn't have a message attached, but the RAF were able to calculate the position of the downed aircraft using the time difference between the plane's ditching and the arrival of the bird. Pigeons were so valuable in airborne operations, where communication could be notoriously spotty, that the U.S. engaged a brassiere manufacturer to create a special sling so that a pigeon could be carried by a paratrooper. A cage with a uh, parachute was also developed to allow planes to drop pigeons to isolated troops, and prior to the D-Day invasion in 1944, thousands of such pigeons were dropped throughout the countryside, asking French citizens to reply with information about the location of German forces. Pigeons played a vital, if almost unknown, role at D-Day, as there was a concern that radio communications were being monitored by the Germans. An Irish pigeon named Paddy was the fastest pigeon to return to England with news of the success of the D-Day landing traveling 230 miles across the English Channel in less than five hours. For his speed in the delivery, Patty was awarded the Dickin Medal, called the Victoria Cross for Animals, one of 32 pigeons to be so honored during the Second World War. Another pigeon to receive the award was G.I. Joe, who in November 1943 was able to successfully carry a message when all other means had failed. The Allies had called in an air bombardment on German troops in the Italian village of Colvivecchia, but the Germans had withdrawn at the last minute, and the village had been occupied by British forces. The Americans realized their bombers were about to bomb Allied troops, but were unable to successfully raise command by radio. G.I. Joe made the trip successfully in 20 minutes, arriving just in time to call off the bombers. Pigeons dropped behind the lines with paratroopers were commonly used to communicate with resistance units. One such pigeon, named Commando, successfully completed more than 90 missions. The pigeons, carried in mobile dovecoats, were used on all fronts. A pigeon named Blackie Harrington successfully carried a message during the Battle of Guadalcanal regarding the location of Japanese troops, despite being hit with shrapnel that tore off part of his neck and chest. Surgeons were able to save Blackie, who spent the rest of his days in the breeding program. The underappreciated war pigeon is no longer used by most armies. The U.S. Army Signal Corps shut down their pigeon service in 1947, and the British Air Ministry pigeon section was shut down in 1948. But the Swiss Army maintained a pigeon section clear until 1996. There's been some indication that homing pigeons might have been used as part of asymmetric warfare in recent years, and pigeons have been caught being used to smuggle things into prisons. And there is a current concern that homing pigeons might be used as a method to deliver bioweapons. White doves, which are sometimes traditionally released as a celebration of weddings and at the opening ceremonies of Olympic Games, are actually homing pigeons that have been bred for their size and their color. And they're supposed to be able to return home, although because they haven't been bred for their homing ability, a distressing number of them don't make it. Still, it is an interesting irony that a technology developed for war has become an international symbol of peace and love. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. So, something I learned, which is only kind of tangential to uh, this episode, actually, is that apparently doves and pigeons, and when you look at their taxonomy, they're the same thing. They're, they're not actually different animals. Uh, in most languages, they don't differentiate between doves and pigeons. It's always interesting to me how many things that I, I think I, you know, I thought I knew, and then I look into it, and it turns out that doves and pigeons are, are really why we consider them separate. Uh, that's just because. <laughs> yeah, just because. <laughs> uh, 
another thing that I really found, you know, surprising in this episode was was how early doves were domesticated. Uh, yeah. Pigeons were domesticated. Because uh, yeah. I, I, I don't think if you had asked me before, if you had been like, oh, what's one of the first five animals domesticated? I don't think the pigeon would have been in, would have been in my mind. Yeah, but I mean, they're relatively easy to domesticate to catch, and they're good food. I mean, you know, if you were, I mean, if you're quick, uh, you could probably live on pigeon if you live in a city, right? Uh, you, oh, yeah. You'd probably Even die today. because they eat all sorts of toxic stuff, uh, and they're, you know, you don't want to eat city pigeons. But uh, yeah, they probably as a food supply, they were initially, and yeah, earlier than you thought, yeah. I well, and you, you, you know, you did an episode on the the passenger pigeon. There was a time mm-hmm. when a pigeon was, you know, these days I think if if you were like, oh, I'm gonna feed someone pigeon, you're like, oh, that's gross. Because <laughs> yeah, squab, you think of a I city mean, you can pigeon. find squab in nicer restaurants. Oh, uh, yeah, fair. but you wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't eat pigeons from, yeah. I mean, you eat squabs that are that are that are raised for food. But yeah, I mean, there was a time when it was a primary protein in the United yeah. States. Certainly, it was pigeon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there were and lots very of very commonly would them. eat pigeons. Yeah. Yeah, we don't seem to do well. I mean, we must do some, to some extent if we're if we're serving them at a fancy restaurant, but there doesn't seem to be real. They are, commercial. they are. But I, I think I, I think in the passenger pigeon one, we mentioned that the squab it's much more expensive than chicken. But there are yeah. places that raise squab, you know, commercially. Uh, but that you know, there's just not that many of them. Yeah. But yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't. I mean, the they were they're saying I mean, pigeons like city pigeons. I mean, yeah. they, you know, they they call them rats with wings or whatever. That's probably not fair to them, but. <laughs> Uh, they do eat. They eat a lot of trash, and they end up. Uh, they're, they're, they end up. You know, you, you'd likely be getting battery acid and all sorts of stuff. It would be eating like a city rat. It wouldn't wouldn't yeah. be healthy meat. You know. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, they're I, eating, I think they suggest that, that you take the you, you put the rat in a cage and feed it corn for a while until it's uh, until it's got the poison out of its system before you eat a <laughs> yeah. rat. So I mean, it's, it's kind of the same thing about pigeons, city birds. Yeah, uh, they're, they're scavengers. They're just eating whatever garbage. And it turns ca- out we, I don't, we yeah, throw I, away. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how we got there, but if you see like rock pigeons and the numbers that they're in and how easy it is to spook them into you know a net or a cage, uh, and and you know raise them as food, then you can see why they were a relatively quickly domesticated animal and yeah. that they traveled with us you know all over the place. Uh, and the homing ability probably came later. You know, recognizing the homing ability came later. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I, I, you're right. I don't think that. And you know, now like city pigeons have interbred with wild populations and stuff like that. So they're essentially all the same critter. Yeah, it's that's an interesting and 100 percent because of humans. <laughs> we we moved them around with us, humans, and now yeah. now we, we have moved them with us. We took them with us. They interbred with us, and and yeah. Well, I mean, you know, just like dandelions, right? They followed yeah. they followed people, and now they're all over the world. It's it's an interesting way, and it was not something we probably well, we brought them with us deliberately, but we didn't realize that we were going to essentially just make all one yeah, yeah. pigeon I species. I don't think anybody thought you know someday you can walk around New York and there'll be a million, million pigeons. Be know, the same pigeon you'll was... see in a. Uh, that that does remind me. I in in high school I, I got to travel to Europe, and I uh, we went to Venice and in in Saint Mark's Square I think is the is the main square there. Uh, there's a lot of pigeons. And there are several, yeah. there are, I'm not necessarily proud of this. Uh, there are several pictures <laughs> of me uh, because I laid down uh, in in the square and put food on me so that the pigeons would climb on me. Uh, uh-huh. So there are, kind of creepy. There, it's, there are numerous people. Well, yeah, when you were very, when you were very small, everybody can remember this now. This is my son. Yeah. When you were very small, <laughs> we were feeding seagulls and you know, you, got, you darn near got carried away. I mean, that, there's no other way, but you had a bag of chips. And those seagulls wanted that bag of chips, and you were just a little toddler. And so it was, it was a little hairy there for a moment. So I think they, those, they were capable. Those seagulls are almost as large as a toddler. Yeah, I think they were enough of them that they could have made off with you. And, you know, I don't know. 
We could have caught you, but we got there in time. So apparently I have a history with uh, feeding at random. You do, apparently. Well, I'm glad <laughs> the pigeons birds. didn't get you. There, there's definitely, there were several other people, uh, tourists, who took some pictures of that. Uh, so there are people in this world somewhere who have images of me as a, uh, what, a 15-year-old uh, in St. Mark's Square covered in pigeons. Um, I wouldn't recommend it. Pigeons are kind of gross, <laughs> but there were a lot of pigeons in St. Mark's Square. That's what I that's that's what I recall, and they would be the exact same pigeons that I you saw. Know, if in you're going to travel, uh, especially like the age that you were, what was it? It was high school. Then you yeah. might as well get a get a spectacular picture. Spectacular. It's better than hanging off the edge of the Matterhorn, or you know. Uh, uh, yeah, that's true. That are more... I'm glad I didn't uh, catch something from a pigeon. Uh, I don't know. I'll know what I could have caught. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, who knows what you could get from a pigeon? Who knows? Yeah, bird flu, presumably, right? So. Yeah, something, something. Probably not good to. Uh, you wouldn't. You wouldn't go. Uh, you know, touch a bunch of city rats. You probably shouldn't go touch a bunch of city pigeons. But I did, and I lived to tell the tale. I don't know anybody's been killed by a pigeon. I really don't. But. Sure. Although someone might be able to to point that out. Uh, <laughs> someone on the internet can find can find an incident an instance. Oh yeah, so someone might. Oh yeah, this guy was killed by a pigeon. I I, I don't think it's very common. No, uh, I don't even rare. think Sully's plane was brought down by pigeons, right? I mean, I think that was, I was something, something bigger than that. Yeah. Some sort, right? I think so. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. I'd have to look how it up. Da- to... How dangerous are pigeons really? That's that's where this has gone. How, so. <laughs> how dangerous are pigeons? <laughs> watch watch out for the pigeons is is our is our main message of today's episode. Yeah, yes. Don't trust a pigeon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, now, now people who do pigeon, who raise dove cuts are going to be mad at us because we yeah, vilified pigeons. Well, and I think if you're keeping it, you know, if you're keeping it relatively, feeding it, you know, grains and stuff like that. Uh, but yes, as we said, I don't probably, actually well, think I pigeons hope, are very I hope dangerous. Most people, people raising it aren't eating them, but I don't know. I, I have no I idea. Yeah, I don't know who's who's. Well, it seems like these days you're, you'd be a lot better off just in terms of like meat per pound raising a chicken, uh, which you can do in a lot yeah, of places. Yeah, well, I, you know, apparently you know, squab, you know, has its market. Yeah, you know, there's squab. There's people who raise squab, so that's uh, it's out there. You know, I think a while after we did this episode, um, I wrote an episode on microfilm, which I was, which was curious because uh, it has a much more ancient history than I thought, which actually yeah, not that yeah, ancient, yeah. but it was older than I thought because it seems like something yeah. we, we would need modern technology to do. And it turns out we figured yeah, out. Yeah, I, I mean, you wouldn't think of microfilm in the, like the Franco-Prussian War and it was yeah. important in the Franco-Prussian War. Yeah, yeah, specifically. And so you you mentioned that here. And so I, I kind mm-hmm. of was like, you know, how how important were pigeons in military communication before reliable electronics and radio yeah, i mean they, they they were used you know back into antiquity uh yeah and, you know, how much i mean how much did i mean did pigeons change the war did pigeons change the world you know communication has always been important i didn't find any story that said that you know uh, caesar got this message from the pigeon just in time to do this or that but i mean yeah. I, i'm sure that they were an important part of, of military infrastructure certainly uh during the uh the siege of paris uh, that's that was like the famous use of the pigeons, uh, yeah. and uh, you know it was at least uh, an important way for people of Paris to not feel like they were cut off. It was the only uh, way they there were is getting even the a, news. Yeah, there's even an interesting story there where one of them covered the pigeon in in coal dust so they wouldn't shoot it, yeah. you know, thinking it was a crow. And, and uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I, you know, how much how much that was exactly doing because you know the paris surrendered in this in in this in the the, the, i mean they lost the fight so and so i you know obviously it didn't necessarily change the outcome but i mean clearly it was at least at that point very important as a way for you to be able to you know communicate outside of that so so i yeah i think uh 
certainly pigeons were, I, I don't think they played the role that, say, electronic communication does today, because I don't think yeah. they were quite as reliable as electronic communication today, but they played an important role in military infrastructure, really from ancient times. Uh, and all of that is important to keeping your empire together. I mean, how do you, how do you keep an empire the size of the Roman Empire together? Uh, how do you keep a, a, an empire the size of the Persian Empire together? There's a reason that they saw pigeons as a way to help do that. Yeah, you had to have, I mean, you had to have a way uh, to communicate somehow. And, I, you know, they've you can run, <laughs> which they did. I mean, that's that was half the reason why Persia had yeah. those great roads. Uh, but the pigeons uh, had a, they've got a remarkable thing that humans don't, and that's the ability to go find where they're supposed to. Uh, and much faster, yeah. That homing. Yeah. So, I mean, it is it is interesting to try to figure out the you know the logistics on using that because essentially yeah. it's a one way process, and then you, you usually have to transport the bird. But I mean, they uh, they played an important role, and that that role continued on. I mean, that's that's one of the yeah. things that's kind of surprising about it, is how late. Uh, militaries were still using pigeons because uh, there's, I mean, even today there's ways that electronic communication can be intercepted uh, that makes them, you know, them, you know, makes you wonder, you know, why aren't we still using pigeons sometimes? Yeah. Uh, and well, so, I mean, it's, uh, who, you know, who, who really knew that, you know, we were using pigeons in the Second World War? I mean, that was kind of a surprise doing that research too, at least the extent yeah. that they were using the Second World War. You yeah, know, I had no idea. Of these paratroopers jumping out, they've got a pigeon cage attached to their, you know, equipment. Uh, because that's wherever you are, you know, you don't, you know, your radio might not work well, but I mean, the pigeon's going to find its way back to England. And that's, that's, yeah. that's interesting. Or at least it has a pretty decent chance to. Uh, yeah. They, yeah. So, I mean, they carry, they carry pigeons on, on military, you know, you know, these huge yeah. military aircraft of the Second World War. You got a pigeon. So if your plane goes down, the pigeon sends the message, you know, saying where you are. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, that was incredible. I I was totally surprised by that. I didn't realize you don't hear about pigeons in World War Two. World War One. I, I mean, that's kind of the that's kind of the famous the famous time when you use yeah pigeons. yeah well, the, when they were using pigeons. Yeah, and I mean we had radio in World War One too, but it was it was a lot harder to use in a yeah. lot of different ways. So you can see why pigeons were maybe a more, more important part of it. But it's hard to imagine, and it, and it's literally a fact that these people were going. You know, they were. Uh, uh, they were going to war with these huge wagons full of pigeons, and that was that yeah. was a, certainly a part of the military infrastructure. So certainly in the Great War, uh, there's there's a lot with the pigeons. But uh, uh, I mean, it, still, I mean, it, before and after, I mean, they've always been this part of an, an infrastructure that makes you almost surprised that they're that they're not being used today. You know, because yeah, uh, you could still see where their their utility might be working today. As a, I mean, as a redundant source of com communication, you really can. And they probably don't, uh, they're small, they probably don't eat that much. They seem to be, I mean, based on that, that uh, image of the, them being carried by the paratroopers, they seem to be relatively easy to carry around. Uh, yeah. If, I mean, but I mean, there's, you know, there's, they're, they're only so reliable. I mean, you don't yeah. know when you send a pigeon that the pigeon's going to make it. But. And they were frequently, uh, frequently targets. And I think that's why you would end up sending, uh, you know, more than one pigeon. Uh and in World War One, uh, you can see where I mean, gosh, the that was that was kind of one of the first wars where you know our artillery started getting us to a place where you weren't just shooting at what you were looking at. Indirect fire was was a big deal, and so you you had places where you literally were firing weapons and you didn't know where you were, you couldn't see physically where you were where those were landing, and it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting story that you know that these. Uh, Pigeons were sometimes their best means of communication. Yeah. Well, they would not have found the lost battalion if it weren't for the pigeons. No, no. The, the pigeons so, but were... But it's, it's also interesting that there was, like, still in the Second World War, like, attempting things like strapping, uh, strapping cameras to them and, yeah. you know, 
seeing if they fly over the Russian lines and get back in time. Yeah. Yeah. See, that was that was an interesting, and of course, you know, by World War II, we also started to have we started to have just more reliable methods of that. But using them yeah. for for aerial photography is an interesting. Of course, you can't yeah, control the pigeon. You, you'd love to see what those pictures are. Yeah, I wonder uh, how. Yes, I wonder well, how. And, then, and then all the way then in the Cold War, we're we're still we're strapping it to the CIA, strapping yeah. them to pigeons. Yeah. Yeah. I, they. Gosh, the, the there's that story. The CIA tried to. Uh, use a cat to to do something like that to to like they yeah, yeah, put yeah, in they a, got hit by a car yeah, yeah, like yeah, immediately yeah. after <laughs> yeah, yeah. it turns i mean that's the problem with with the animals is that you know they're only yeah. so uh, gosh you can release a pigeon and maybe it's going to get eaten by a cat in the three minutes you know <laughs> that's true i mean there's different things that can happen to pigeons but uh, uh there's a i mean in your you know all sorts of radio communications can be intercepted and stuff too but yeah. the homing ability of pigeons made them particularly useful for for and not just war i mean that's a, that's a cool thing about the episodes that talks about a lot i mean there's a while where there was an island in you know new zealand that that was the only way that they had mail you know was to send pigeons uh so i they it's just a fascinating history uh for something that now i mean i think very few except for there's still a hobby of 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 pigeons of using humming pigeons but i mean uh, now uh they're essentially just a hobby and you know i guess occasionally in a nice restaurant you can get a squab uh and uh and it's interesting because uh, they're so uh, pigeons are important to history i mean they were they were uh, if you look at this and also the passenger pigeon episode, I mean, they were they were important in war. They were important as a food supply. There was a while where, you know, really you would have thought when you thought about animals that were important to the human race, pigeons would have been well up the list, you know, with, with you know, farm animals. Uh, and now, uh, you know, they're mostly pests in a city. Uh, I, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people still enjoy feeding pigeons, but I mean, I, I you know, I think most people see those, you know, masses of city pigeons as being almost pestered and, and, uh, and, you know, a very rare, you know, item in food. And it, it's interesting that it's, that it's made that change, uh, because there was yeah. a point where we were literally giving medals of heroism to pigeons. To pigeons. And I, you yeah, know, and that, you know, that juxtaposition where you've got an, a, a military airplane or a tank and yeah. there's, you know, there's a hand coming out with pigeons. And coming out with a pigeon, that, that just, we were so. I mean, that 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 overlap is just fascinating. That yeah, between this these technological uh, marvels, honestly, for their time, yeah. and the fact that we were communicating with these these pigeons, you know, yeah, that 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 uh, you know Caesar used, yeah. It it struck me several times during the episode. You know, you talk about these pigeons, uh, such as Cherami, who was was important in saving the lost battalion. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting about that is that we did award them, but we didn't just you know give them medals. I mean, surgeon saved that bird, and it's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Uh, Cherami had a leg blown off and shot through the breast and made it there, and the surgeon the surgeon saved the bird. Yeah, they, they didn't were have it for dinner. Yeah. They were not just, you know, these something that was was a was a dis, dispensable item that oh well it's it's done now. Uh, it's yeah yeah. I mean that was true. I mean we'll talk about that with the dogs too. Yeah. But I mean the horses too. I mean I think there were quite a people, uh, quite a number of, of soldiers even in the, in the in the trenches and stuff who understood the sacrifice these animals were making. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, I mean there was exceptional effort in in bringing Cherami home because Cherami had done something very very brave, uh, and that's that is extraordinary. Uh, uh, yeah. To think about it, I mean, it, you know, that I think that episode starts talking about, you know, what's the smallest soldier to have received a medal in, in the First World War, that that, na- that nine ounce soldier was important yeah. enough that they, you know, the surgeons, I mean, well, who would think a pigeon would survive a gunshot wound? Uh, I know, right? Any, any effort to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and to keep it alive because that's something that yeah, I... give it a gave it a prosthetic leg. Well, you know, Theodore Roosevelt had a one one legged chicken too, so I mean, you <laughs> never know. Uh, but I mean, and you know. It's probably not a bad life to go back into the breeding program. That's, that, no. That pigeon was probably, you know, I'd done my time, you know, I got the thousand yard stare and now I get to go home and, you know, make more pigeons. Yeah. I wonder, uh, I, I just, I, 
people clearly cared about these these animals. They they knew Absolutely, what they were doing, yeah. and it's yeah. it's it's special. I think it says something about you know humans that that we have yeah. that compassion. Even I mean, even as we're putting pigeons in a situation that. Uh, yeah, well, even as you're sending pigeons up when you know they're getting shot, but also in the in the horrors of war that yeah. that, that they have compassion for a pigeon. Uh, yeah, that says something about how humans work. Yeah. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? Yeah, I, I watch a lot of Magellan TV. I, today I was watching one called Tales of Irish Castles. Uh, and I do, I love going to Europe and seeing the castles. Uh, and I know I, a lot of people don't know this. There's a castle 50 miles from my home here in the United States. But, you know, there's such history in them. And it's, it's so, I mean, sometimes you're crossing a bridge that's they hadn't discovered the New World when they built that bridge and you're still walking across it. So Tales of Irish Castles is a series. Uh, and it really is a history of Ireland told through its castles. And the castles really have a lot to do with the English history in Ireland. That is that the uh, uh, prior to the English and Strongbow and that the, the Irish weren't really castle builders. The English came in and built castles. And it, compared to England, a lot of the castles in Ireland are in better shape. They, did, they weren't destroyed <laughs> during the Civil War and stuff like that. The English Civil War destroyed a lot of castles. Uh, so some of them are just beautifully preserved. And so it's called Tales of Irish Castles. You get a really good feel for the history of Ireland. And you also get to see these lovely, spectacular castles in great detail. Uh, and and uh, I really enjoy visiting castles. It makes me want to go to Ireland and visit some of these castles. Absolutely worth your time. I love Magellan TV. There's so much fun to watch. But I mean, it's uh, as someone who just kind of enjoys, I mean, you just feel like you're somewhere when you're in a castle, right? There's yeah. a reason that someone built this. Uh, it is just a, an absolutely delightful series uh, because uh, the people that are telling the story clearly have a passion for the for the history of Ireland. One of, one of the main uh, announcers, I, I was, I was a, a bit amused because he was clearly still mad that the English had come. Uh, in the 12th century to <laughs> Ireland so that you get this real the, the same passion for history that I think is one of the reasons that people love the history guy and it's one of the reasons I love Magellan TV is that there's things like this I mean this is a series six different episodes so I mean if you're going to binge watch you know why binge watch an old sitcom when you, you can binge watch the history of Ireland via through yeah. its castles which is just fun and fascinating what have you been uh, watching on Magellan TV it's a little bit of an older documentary but it's called wildest places Australia and so it's uh, it's very much a classic kind of, uh, gosh, when I was a kid, I used to watch so much on Animal Planet and learn all kinds of stuff. And I learned a lot, a lot in the, it's got four <laughs> episodes, but the, even in the, uh, even in just the first episode that I watched today, I was like, wow, I, uh, I'm learning a lot about really weird things that live in Australia. And yeah. it's, it's yeah, every it's a... time they talk about the, the famous ones you're going to hear about, you know, kangaroos and koalas, but uh, they talk about like these ants that go, go store uh, sap from a tree. They just go hang off the ceiling <laughs> inside the little ant holes. And they're, they're literally just storage for when there's not water for, for the ants. And I'm like, that's an incredible, <laughs> they're just all hanging there. Like a, like, you know, wow. Water system. Like they're a canteen. Yeah. For a water system. Yeah. That's interesting. Canteens. And then the other wow, ants come yeah. up to them. It's, it's so, and that it was a lot about that kind of stuff. And then it talks about, I mean, it talks about everything you want to, you want to hear about in Australia. They've got crazy, crazy animals. They do very, very different than, than North America. And yeah. 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 Natural history. Uh, one of the cool things about Magellan TV is that you don't just go there for history, which you do, but yeah. they've got a lot of great nature videos, space, true crime. Uh, they've got some fiction on there. That's actually pretty good too. Yeah. Some historical fiction and stuff like that. Uh, so that's, I mean, you know, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I've not been to Australia. I'd like to go to Australia. Uh, and uh, my mom's been there several times. She's been on the podcast a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, and it is, they're just different animals than we're used to. 
yeah, it's it's a really it's a really unique ecosystem, and it's it's something that was a ton of fun to learn about. Yeah, so that's called Wildest Places Australia. I watched a lot of animal documentaries too. I mean, I, I watched Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom, and it's been a whole different generation than you do. But it really does bring you back sometimes. And it, you know, there's uh, nature is fascinating, and there's yeah. a lot of great nature stuff on on Magellan TV. Thank you, Magellan TV, for sponsoring uh, the History Guy. You guys always are great to us, and and uh, and we do really love Magellan TV. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of the History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com/historyguy where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, the History Guy talks about Mercy Dogs and the life-saving work they did during World War I. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the History Guy. If you were a soldier wounded in the Great War lying in the cratered and muddied morass of no man's land, it might have been easy to lose hope. Many of those wounded would crawl as best they could, trying to find some cover from the enemy snipers and the weather, only hoping that they could be found by a friendly medic. But medics in that war had a unique way to find those lost and injured men. One that came on four legs, carrying a pack with medical supplies and maybe a drink. And if that soldier was unable to return on their own, the four-legged friend might leave and return, with a doctor in tow, all without uttering a single bark. Dogs have accompanied men into war for probably most of human history, but the Great War was the first war where they were used in an official and broad capacity to find wounded men. Mercy dogs, which were also known as casualty dogs or ambulance dogs, were used on all sides in the First World War, and they saved thousands of lives. It is history that deserves to be remembered. Dogs, of course, have been widely used by armies throughout history. There are depictions of dogs straining on their leashes as far back as the ancient Assyrians, although it isn't clear whether they were used in combat. Certainly dogs, especially mastiffs and other large breeds like the Molossian Hound, have been used in combat since antiquity. Alexander the Great took dogs with him across Asia, and the Celts and Romans both seem to have used dogs widely in combat. Of course, dogs were used for much more than actual combat. They could be used to protect an army's supply of livestock, as well as warn the camp of spies or an ambush. They were especially useful for sentry duty, as they can sense threats and disturbances in the dark that others simply miss. They have been and continue to be used in special support roles, sniffing out bombs, foes, and the wounded. At the outset of the First World War, it was the latter that became their most important job. With the exception of England, all the European belligerents had military dog programs active at the outset of the war. Industrialization made even the largest dog less useful as a combatant, as no amount of specialty-designed armor was going to protect a dog from a bomb or a bullet. In the 1800s, Germany began training what they called Zanitatsunde, or sanitary dogs, whose job was to find the wounded and the dying among the dead after a battle. Among the earliest was a program put together by animal painter Jean Bungartz in 1895, which was described as a novel experiment. By 1908, Italy, Austria, and France had created their own programs to train mercy dogs. Germany had around 6,000 trained mercy dogs by the outbreak of the war, and may have used as many as 30,000 dogs in various roles throughout the war. Mercy dogs were given the unenviable job of locating the wounded in the chaos after a battle. They could distinguish between the dead and the dying, and proved to be incredibly capable of triaging the men they found. 
One military surgeon praised the dog, saying, They sometimes lead us to the bodies we think have no life in them, but when we bring them back to the doctors, they always find a spark. It is purely a matter of their instinct, which is far more effective than man's reasoning powers. These dogs would often be outfitted with saddlebags that carried some medical supplies like bandages and liquor so that an injured soldier could drink to numb the pain or apply medical aid. Primarily, the dog's job was to find the wounded where no one else could. Wounded soldiers often crawled away from combat to find some place to hide where they would often be missed by soldiers coming the field after a battle. The dogs weren't fooled, and they easily found soldiers hidden in the mud and the carnage. They were often trained to carry something of the soldier back, like a piece of a uniform or a belt or even a helmet, to indicate that they'd found someone, although some were trained instead to return with an attached leash in their mouth instead, as some of the dogs would actually tear off bandages in their mission to help the wounded. It wasn't just the belligerent governments that used dogs for these purposes. Various National Red Cross groups trained dogs to help locate wounded soldiers as well. These dogs became known by a variety of names. Medical dogs, ambulance dogs, casualty dogs, and of course, mercy dogs. Many breeds of dog were used, but some were more prominent than others. In the early days, the Germans preferred English breeds, especially collies and English shepherds of various kinds. One of the most popular were Airedale Terriers, also commonly used as police dogs before the German Shepherd became popular. German Shepherds and Doberman Pinschers were also common. Other than a general belief that the best dogs were purebreds, many breeds served. German trainers also tried Poodles, which turned out to be unsuitable because they are short-sighted, as well as St. Bernard's in Pointers. Dogs saw service on all sides and all fronts of the war. On the Western Front, the Germans used as many as 30,000 and the Allied powers 20,000 in support roles. It took longer for the Allied powers to embrace their use. France developed ambulance dog training before the war, but the first English training center didn't open until 1917. The most important single man in the English war dog effort was Colonel Edwin Richardson, an early proponent who had been training dogs for war and ambulance work before anyone else in England, and who helped train and educate militaries around the world on their use. At least two dogs he trained, Carlo and Robbie, served as ambulance dogs in the Russo-Japanese War in 1904. Richardson assisted the French, Belgian, and even consulted with Americans before the war on the use of dogs in war, but only one support after two of his Airedales, Wolf and Prince, served with distinction as messenger dogs at the Battle of Vimy Ridge. The Americans never fully developed a war dog program, although an 1896 article in the U.S. Journal of the Military Service Institution reviewed Germany's success and admonished that we have the best dogs, the greatest number of dog shows and dog enthusiasts, but had failed to even try to match the German program. Though a program never appeared, thousands of American dogs were donated to the Red Cross for use as ambulance dogs. Colonel Richardson said that the dogs were best used when the army was moving and that they were nearly useless on the static western front, claiming that the only ambulance dogs that were used with any success were those with the German army when the Russians were retreating. Despite this claim, there are countless anecdotal stories of dogs on the western front performing as ambulance dogs. The French army found that the Red Cross symbol the dogs wore was often ignored, and soldiers on both sides freely shot at the dogs doing humanitarian work. The dogs were kept behind friendly lines in large kennels, and handlers were sent to the front to assist Red Cross doctors and nurses in locating soldiers lost on the battlefield. Because they were often made targets, despite their kind mission, they were usually used at the end of large battles and at night, when soldiers could search for the wounded and using lights would only attract enemy fire. They were incredibly good at their jobs. The journal of one German Red Cross worker describes working with his dog less than 400 meters from French lines and finding in short order five wounded, 
three severely wounded and two slightly wounded, which even with the sharpest eyesight you could not have found. Prince dogs were described as returning from the lines to their kennel, then to bark and turn back to indicate they had found a soldier. The soldiers could be found at the bottom of deep ravines and other sequestered places, so well hidden that it could take a whole day to get the soldier free. The dogs, unaware of the larger causes for the war and innocent of it, still served with an incredible bravery and commitment. One French dog called Prusko was credited with saving more than a hundred men. In one battle he saved three badly wounded men by allowing them to grab onto his collar one at a time and physically drag them to safety. Another dog called Steiff was given the Iron Cross when he charged onto the field to rescue a German lieutenant shot in a failed attack. Steiff grasped the lieutenant's coat between his teeth and, foot by foot, dragged him to safety. Steiff was shot at least twice in the rescue attempt, but recovered with the soldier he had rescued. Perhaps the most famous dog who served with the Americans was Sergeant Stubby. Stubby was of uncertain breed. Contemporary news described him as a Boston Terrier or a kind of Terrier Mutt. He was found on the Yale University campus and adopted by the 102nd Infantry as a mascot after one soldier smuggled him onto the ship bound for France. But Stubby proved he was more than capable of doing his part. Though he was not trained as a mercy dog, he was said to have located and rescued numerous soldiers, as well as warned his unit of incoming artillery and gas attacks. He was wounded several times, given a specially made gas mask, and sewn a coat that held his various awards. His title of sergeant was not in jest, either. After attacking a German spy, he was put in for, and given, the rank of sergeant. Of course, there are many other anecdotes about the heroism of these dogs, with names like Rags. In addition to locating and rescuing soldiers, the Mercy Dogs were also known to find soldiers who were too wounded to be saved. Many of these dogs remained with the dying soldiers, providing them with some comfort in a situation bereft of it, and making sure that those wounded men did not die alone. Mercy Dogs also became a symbol of patriotism. An American military recruitment poster with the image of a dog wearing a red cross says, Even a dog enlists. Why not you? A young girl who sent her dog to be trained by Colonel Richardson wrote that we have let Daddy go to fight the Kaiser, and now we are sending Jack to do his bit. A Frenchman wrote, I already have three sons and a son-in-law with the colors. Now I give up my dog, and vive la France. They were widely depicted in propaganda as steadfast heroes on the front and were included on the covers of the Saturday Evening Post and Red Cross magazine. They were elevated to heroic levels and attributed human emotions and characteristics. Of course, like the soldiers, they suffered for their service. Shell shock, now recognized as a kind of post-traumatic stress disorder, was first recognized during the Great War and certainly affected dogs as well as humans. It is estimated that 7,000 dogs were killed in the war. It's not known how many wounded soldiers' lives were saved by the Mercy Dogs of the Great War, but there is firm evidence that the number is at least in the thousands, including at least 4,000 Germans and 2,000 French troops. And in addition to Mercy Dogs, they also were used to deliver messages, which they could do faster than any human, as well as to serve as scouts and sentries. Mercy Dogs continued to be used throughout the 20th century, in the Second World War, and by the U.S. in the Korean War. Today, search and rescue dogs are used to find injured and trapped people after natural disasters. Despite the human tendency to anthropomorphize animals, of course dogs know nothing of patriotism and politics. The war must have been as terrifying to them as it was to the wounded soldiers that they were sent out to find the risk of their own life. And yet they served in the Great War without question, saving lives and easing human suffering. It is important for us to recognize that service, to thank them, truly, man's best friend. So 
of course, dogs are often called man's best friend. I've never seen that described more clearly and the reasons behind it shown uh, more than in this episode. I honestly, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Rewatching this episode, this is I, I, I mean, I wrote this episode, and it's it's still an episode that that uh, brings tears to my eyes. It's 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 a beautiful thing. It's astounding the sacrifices that these animals made on behalf of yeah. people, uh, and uh, you know, I think we see that today. I mean, there's there's police animals, there's rescue animals, there's yeah. all sorts of comfort animals and things like that. But I mean, you know, if you think about the horror of war, and that you know, men wouldn't they called it no man's land for a reason, right? I mean, yeah. you know, soldiers wouldn't go out there. Uh, and yet these these dogs would, and and at the risk of injury and at the risk of their lives, and I mean it had to be absolutely terrifying for dogs, you know, bombs oh, and yeah. gas and and everything, uh, and uh, and yet they did it, uh, and uh, you know, uh, at very least they brought comfort to the dying, but they also yeah. saved lives, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is an extraordinary story. It's I think the story is not well known. The dogs are being used in that way, and and. Uh, uh, and I think it surprises people still how many animals were being used in the First World War yeah. and even in the Second World War as well. But, I mean, it is it's also just shows really that there's this there's this ability of compassion uh, that's in the dog. Uh, yeah. That really is the reason they call it man's best friend. Yeah, it sure it sure seems like, uh, you know, we I mean, we train the animals and we get them to do these things that they don't necessarily want to do. But it sure seems like, I mean, there were multiple stories in here of dogs that were not trained as mercy dogs, and yet they still uh, did those jobs. They found people, they brought people to them, they provided comfort for, I mean, in the face of, of uh, terrifying, I mean, even just the sounds, you know, dogs, uh, gosh, most people's dogs these days, uh, they've never had to face combat, thank goodness, but they're afraid of, you know, fireworks. And now we're talking about dogs that we've We've trained essentially to run into explosions and they were frequently injured. And again, you know, like with the pigeons, I mean, these were animals that we uh, cared enough about that despite yeah. their injuries that we were we were performing surgery on them. Yeah, yeah uh, they had hospitals for the dogs. Yeah. 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 I think they saw them as valuable military technology, but I mean, you have to think they had affinity for it. And that's true today, yeah. too. I mean, the, yeah. the, the service dogs, I mean, there are real connections between the service members and the dogs. And, and yeah. uh, you know, then sometimes they're asking to leave the animals behind as, you know, as like military equipment. I think that would, that, that really shocks people because they yeah. see them as, as companions and see them as part of the, uh, you know, part of the military. Yeah, these are, that they're not you know, animals as, as they that should the, be. They see that more as a compatriot, as a soldier than as, yeah. a, as a, you know, truck. It is, I think, one of the one of the shocking pieces of this episode is that they do... Uh, that soldiers on both sides shot at the dogs and i, I kind of yeah it seems really horribly cruel but i mean can you can you think of reasons why they might do that i mean why they're shooting at these well i mean they are i mean again they're military technology they're out doing the service of the other side uh, and uh, you know it's a cruel war um they yeah. also shot horses uh, because That's they true. knew the horses could be used to move things and do things and uh, but I think part of that, too, was simply that uh, the, the whole idea of no man's land is nothing's supposed to be moving out there. And if it is, it's a threat. Yeah. Uh, and so I think some of them, they were simply shooting at anything that moves. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's some there's some dehumanization that comes in. Where there might be some people simply shooting because it's something that they can shoot at. And I don't know. But I, I think there was some strategy with pigeons, too. I think there was some strategy yeah. to say that uh, uh, these animals are serving the, the opponent's military and we have to see them as, you know, part of the war. Yeah. Well, and we, you know, we focus on this in this episode that they were uh, mer on mercy dogs, but they were used for a lot 
of different things. They in were, the war. yeah, yeah. You see pictures in the First World War they are hauling machine guns and they're. I mean, they yeah, I was I was just reading about the. Belgians. But you also see a lot of companion animals too. I mean, yeah. they're clearly not using those for a working animal. They just found a puppy, and they, you know, it's it's the mascot and and it comforts people and uh, and I mean, Sergeant Stubby wasn't necessarily a mercy dog. So Sergeant Stubby oh. did all sorts of stuff for the for the regiment. So yeah, I mean, there was a lot of use of of animals, and now you know, of course, in the Second World War, we use them. The Ranger groups yeah. use them as you know for for you know hunting. I mean, for the you know their their scent capabilities and stuff uh and so I, I there's a lot of i mean there's a lot of different breeds of dogs that have a lot of different skills and they're used for a lot of different purposes yeah. and they are still dogs that are of course still used commonly with the military very often you see you know military yeah. accompanied by dogs these days yeah yeah and they do uh, well they i mean it's changed uh, we're not using dogs for the most part the way that alexander the great was where they were war oh, yeah, dogs. Yeah. i don't think there's any war dogs out there anymore yeah i don't think there's anybody using dogs to attack no. Uh, uh, per se, but I mean, I think they're mostly used for you know sniffing capability and stuff like that. But I yeah. mean, they can do some things that that you cannot do uh, uh, that no machine that we've invented can do as well as the dog can do. Yeah. And you know, their dogs are guard dogs. They warn you that something's coming, which yeah. is important. You know, in war. One one of the things I read that, uh, and I guess one of the reasons why someone might have shot at a dog, uh, they the Germans trained some of the dogs to go go out in front of infantry and find trenches. And they would bark if that if there were people in that trench. And so, yeah. you know, if you're the British or the French, you learn pretty quickly that a dog showing up and barking at your trench probably means the Germans are about to show up. <laughs> uh, and that's, yeah, so you can you can see how that's how that's dangerous. I mean, a, you know, a German dog is still a German dog. I mean, the dog yeah. probably doesn't care about the politics, but he certainly is. They're, they're, they're using him for a reason, right? Yeah. And they carried messages. And I mean, they're perf- just like shooting at the pigeons. Uh, there's a reason you want to stop a message from getting someplace that could that could be a real significant part of a battle, uh, and they're they're in combat. It's it's a sad it's a I mean it's a sad thing that that we're putting them there. And these dogs, you know, don't don't care about the politics of it, but they're caught up in the. But it's it's just one of those it's another one of those things that that happens anyway. And I I think that uh, certainly we've talked numerous times about you know what it means to be uh, heroes. And whether whether dogs are being heroic or not, but it sure seems like that, you know, they knew they were in danger. Uh, they knew they were in places that they didn't necessarily want to be, and they were still doing jobs anyway. Yeah, I mean, it had to be absolutely her- terrifying. Yeah. And and that they could train them to, uh, you know, to not run away from shellfire. I mean, that's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, and that they so that we they would. About, we talked about with like Sergeant Reckless too. That I mean, yeah. there, you know, there were places you know where you we used a lot of mules, also in horses in the Second World War, and and you know some of the animals just never could get used to shellfire, and some of them yeah. you know would be calm in shellfire. I can't imagine training a dog to do that. I can't imagine training a dog uh, that's going to go out and I mean, dogs know they're being shot at. You know, oh, they yeah. know that they're in danger, uh, and still doing their job. I mean, that's I, you have to see that as a form of bravery from an animal that doesn't even you know, certainly understands loyalty. But yeah. cannot possibly understand what you know the geopolitical consequences <laughs> that are leading to the First World War. Yeah, and it, but it, I mean, it's incredible that they were they they were incredibly good at finding people, and that they they did repeatedly. And I mean, they talk about the the dogs that like the French dog that literally you know dragged people back to the to the trenches. Uh-huh. That wasn't even necessarily something that they were all trained to do, but they still found ways to to they knew. They knew enough about what they were doing that they, you know, they went and saved these people. And I think that's one of the crazy things about, uh, say, Sergeant Stubby. And there were numerous animals like this. I mean, Stubby was a stray dog they found they found yeah. when they were getting ready to getting ready to come over to Europe, and he still uh, performed 
or the role of uh, a mercy dog at times where he was finding people mm -hmm. and and making sure and bringing you know help and stuff like that and this that's something that, that he apparently picked up on instinct it's yeah yeah just by the skills by the skills of dogs i mean you know one of the reasons that we domesticated dogs is they hunt the way that we do they yeah. operate in packs the way that we do and but they also have senses that we don't have and, and so you know i think that what people you know we breed a lot to to specific characteristics but what we figured out is how you know how dog behavior intersects with human behavior and so i you know the fact that it searches something wounded that it searches for a man that's alive that it knows that the person is in danger you know you know lassie lassie is <laughs> yeah me fall down the well i mean that, that, that there is really a recognition of that and uh, smart animals and they're you know there's uh, again they're still used in all sorts of purposes today i mean but the idea that they were used in such a massive purpose uh and partly because they were expendable i mean partly because you could send dogs to do where you know the doctor's not going to go out there and do that yeah. uh, but uh, you know partly because they're simply better at it because they can smell you want to bring your doctor to someone you can actually save yeah. uh, and then also just that whole idea that they offered comfort Incredible. Yeah, that, they, that they would come and be a you know a, a warm body next to you so you didn't die alone. I mean, and there were there were a lot story. of stories of that of these animals, and it seems, uh, I mean, gosh, that's a it's a form of compassion. There, and the dogs clearly know something about it's. Uh, they talked about it uh, in the you talked about it in the episode where they were apparently very good at triaging. Uh, they mm -hmm. they knew who was who was who could be saved, and who couldn't be, and they uh, they were able to provide that comfort. Gosh, with very little it feels like uh, reward to themselves um one of the things i mean there was a lot so much happening in this episode that there was more to talk about that i didn't get to talk about uh, i remember reading a lot about um the the british guy who was in charge essentially kick-started uh -huh. their whole program and his airedales which were i these days you know airedales aren't really used for we don't think of them as as they they, they don't do bomb sniffing and stuff like that but they were uh -huh. they were uh, sig the significant part of the war, and that was a lot of what the British did. I also remember reading. I was trying to I was trying to figure out where I could find where I found that source. But before the war, you know, the Germans liked uh, collies and English dogs. And one of the ways they got those dogs is they actually had people. They were sending people to England to like surreptitiously buy these dogs or take them so that they could they could build up their breeding programs. It's an interesting. It's an interesting uh -huh. piece of the war that you know we don't think about. But thinks about that, yeah, yeah. That the the Germans and the well and everybody except England essentially uh, and the U.S which which didn't do it uh, we never really had our own military program for it although we did do some of it in korea and and world war ii actually used some dogs in these kinds of uh, especially the red cross did a lot of that but it's it's an interesting it's a really interesting piece of history that uh, i think it is and it ties to a lot i mean we did one on on the the saint bernard's uh, and yeah. uh, we did one. i mean there's uh, I mean, dogs are extraordinary creatures, and as extraordinary creatures, they've played extraordinary roles in human history. Yeah. You know, there was a period, I mean, there was a long period probably in human history when as our hunting companions, I mean, they kept whole groups alive. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's that's in prehistory, and we don't have a, have a good recording of it. But, I mean, there's a reason that, you know, dogs have been ubiquitous throughout. And, you know, war is a massive human endeavor, and, of course, it was going to include animals. And, of course, yeah. it was going to include dogs, because uh, wherever we go, we take dogs. But... Uh, 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 you know, it, that's not certainly the only endeavor where, you know, dogs have made a difference. Yeah. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's interesting to think about, you know, have to protect your dog breed for fear as a, as a piece of military technology. Or we found out when yeah. we talked about, uh, 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 when we talked about just nuisance, who was the dog in South Africa, great yeah. Danes were from Germany, but they, they call them great Danes because they didn't, because of the war. 
they yeah. didn't want to say they were from Germany. And, and it's, you know, <laughs> hey, interesting. it's kind of funny. So they weren't raised in Denmark at all. They're, they're, they're yeah. not really a Danish dog. And now we call them Great Danes because of that. So it's kind of interesting when you see that weird intersection, that powerful intersection between yeah. animals and humans uh, and, uh, and dogs and humans because we have such a tight connection. Uh, and the way we did dog breeds and everything, you really see that uh, you cannot really separate human history and dog history. No. You, you're going so far back into prehistory uh, before the two of us were so integral to each other that we couldn't really you know, survive without yeah. each other. So it really makes you wonder, because you don't think if we go to, say, colonize Mars or whatever, you don't imagine the first thing we're going to put on a spaceship and try to get there is a dog. But it's almost hard to believe that we won't. Yeah. I mean, it is hard to believe that we could colonize the stars, that we wouldn't be taking dogs with us, because we have never colonized a frontier without that, dogs. Without dogs. I mean, humans have just never done that. You know, wherever you are, there were always dogs. So so intertwined in history that we frequently forget uh yeah. And take for granted their, their contributions. And, and write them in our history, into our history. Yeah. yeah forget their contributions. Yeah. And which is too bad because they're, I mean, I don't know how you define hero, but I mean, if what these mercy dogs were doing was not heroic, then what is? I mean, right. I, that's the, and I, I don't know. It's a different, it's a different story to talk about you know, whether the dogs or the, the pigeons, which you think probably have even less ability to understand what's going on. Uh, yeah. How much, how much of, how much of what's going on do they, do they get? Uh, but they, they got enough they, of it. They certainly seem to, I don't want to anthropomorphize it, anthropomorphize it, but they certainly act like they understand yeah. that this well, is important. There's, you know, they talk about Stubby. He was, uh, promoted to a sergeant specifically for an action because, uh, according to the Smithsonian, is what is where is where I read this version of the story where he there was a German taking pictures of trenches and the dog saw it and the German was like oh look a dog and and Stubby barked at him and then attacked him and you know bit at his leg and that was enough to to keep him slowed down for the for the allies to come and capture him so they talk about yeah. Stubby having huh. having uh, captured a, a German spy and that's. It sure feels like he understands to some extent. He knows who the who the enemy is. Yeah, who the, how's he know who's the who's a good guy, who's a bad guy? You know, yeah, dogs do that though. I mean, there's dogs that know somehow know yeah. who to bite. You know, yeah, it's it's an it's an, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting piece of history, and it's it's one of those things where I think you know it's beautiful what uh, what yeah, the dogs it's a were power, able to it's do. It's a powerful episode. It's a touching yeah. episode. It is very difficult to watch that episode, listen to that episode, and not come to tears. Yeah, uh, uh, just over you know how these companions have done. For us what they've done and, and what they've sacrificed to do it thank you for listening to this episode of the history guy podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode of forgotten history and if you did you can find more on our website thehistoryguy.com we release podcasts every two weeks so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of forgotten history you can also find us on facebook youtube instagram twitter and patreon You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.